available to buy today, uh, so do take a chance to have a look at it. I'm sure after you've heard him speak, you'll be racing to buy it. Um, this event is the, it's the first event in the Middle East Centre's series for the academic year, uh, so it's exciting to kick off again after the summer. It's also the first event in a series that my colleague Zeynep Kaya and I are convening uh, on Kurdish studies. We have a little Kurdish study series which started last year. We had a couple of events. Uh, we will be holding four events over this year. We have three more booked. Uh, there's one in November and then a couple in the spring term. So uh, do sign up to our mailing list for details of those events and we look forward to seeing you at more of those. Um, Vladimir wrote this book uh, in collaboration with Harriet Alsop. Um, Harriet was hoping to come today, but she sends apologies. Sadly, she hasn't been able to get uh, childcare, so she's not able to join us, which is a shame, but we're delighted to have Vladimir and know he has more than enough to share with us uh, at this event. The proceedings are very simple, very straightforward. We want to keep it quite informal and as interactive as possible. Um, Vladimir will present for around 20 minutes, and that will leave us plenty of good time for questions and discussion with you all afterwards. Uh, housekeeping, this talk is being recorded. It will be available for podcast afterwards through our website. Uh, please silence your phones, if only for that reason. Um, if you'd like to tweet, the hashtag for this is at LSE Kurds. Um, that's pretty much there. So, Vladimir, welcome. Thank you so much for taking the time to come here. Thank you. Very, very pleased to have you over uh, to London, to LSE, to speak today. Vladimir is an analyst of Kurdish politics and a journalist living in Erbil. Much of his work is based on first-hand research and interviews conducted on the ground in Iraqi Kurdistan and, crucially for the purposes of today's event, also in northern Syria. In 2013, he received an MA from the, the wonderful Kurdish Studies Programme at the University of Exeter. Vladimir, thank you for coming. The floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you. Maybe the microphone. Of course. <laughs> Hello. Yeah, thank you all for coming. Um, so I'm going to talk today about uh, my co-authored book. Um, let me see if this works. So this is this is me in Hasaka, and this I think it was in Mombich. Um, so um, let me tell first something about the project itself. Uh, so this project, it was not just about the Kurds of Syria. Um, there was a project by, um, by the Iraqi Institute for Strategic Studies, uh, headed by uh, Fala Jabbar, who sadly died last year. Uh, he started like basically a project funded by a Canadian uh, NGO called uh, IDRC in Canada uh, to do like a monograph on the Kurds of Syria, the Kurds of Iraq, the Kurds of Iran, uh, the Kurds of Turkey. Um, so the idea in the beginning was just to do a monograph, but then later uh, there was another uh, plan basically to write a book about it, like to do several books on this topic. But now it's a little bit uh, confusing because uh, Dr. Fala sadly passed away. Um, he did like one, uh, he has another, there's another book on general introduction to the curse by Renat Mansour and, and uh, Dr. Fala. Um, so if you're interested in that, you can also look that up on, on Amazon. Um, so I did, uh, for this book, we've had also this research on the ground. Um, so the first time I went, it was like um, in April 2016 until uh, August 2016. Uh, we did... I did basically most of the field research on the ground. I did around 180 surveys. I did like a lot of interviews with a lot of uh, officials on the ground. 
And it was quite difficult because, you know, there was still the ongoing war against ISIS. Uh, there was, like, the operation to liberate Mombich. There was, like, fighting between the Kurds and the regime. And also there are some foreigners that were basically not a lot of foreigners, but, like, a few cases of foreigners that were captured by the Syrian regime in Kamishlo and ended up uh, in a prison in Damascus for a short time. Um, so it was, like, quite difficult to do the research because, like, the problem is that, I mean, Syria is in the middle of a civil war, and, like, it's very difficult to do research on such a topic when constantly it's changing. Like, I mean, Trump can tweet the next day something, and then something changed. So that's the problem. Or Erdogan says something crazy. So there's always this problem that you have to update this book constantly. Uh, and finally, like, after three years, uh, three years the book was published uh, this year. Uh, I was actually in Syria when it was published, so I couldn't do much. Uh, like, a lot of people were asking me, oh, why you didn't bring the book? I said, well, I'm in Syria. I cannot magically uh, bring the book here so here i am today um to just show you like how difficult it was like for instance uh, in the beginning when i was in syria and kamishli especially there was still fighting in nusaybin uh between like kurdish youth groups and the turkish army so when i was in kamishli one day there was like a mortar coming in from the turkish side and some civilians were were injured so like all the time the whole day you heard like fighting going on nusaybin until basically it stopped uh, and also there were like short clashes between uh, the Syrian regime and the Kurds uh, in April uh, for two days. Uh, so that was like also in the middle of basically of, of Kamishlo and basically it sort of got stuck somewhere. Um, so that was also difficult. And then later there was this very long campaign to liberate Mambich that took like a few months. Um, and then... I mean, then after that, I thought everything is finished. And then, like, there was one week of clashes between the Syrian regime and the Kurds uh, in the town of Hasaka. So just to give, like, an example, like, how many events were happening just in this short time that I was in Syria. So uh, I will just explain something about the development of the administrations. So in July 2012, uh, the Kurds, between two, July 2012, like some people say they took all the areas in 2012, but that's not true. It's like between 2012 and 2013, they took most of like the Kurdish majority enclaves in northern Syria. I mean, there was always still like a small pocket of the regime in Kamishli, but in general, they controlled most of the areas since then. So then like the idea started basically also to set up an administration. So the first discussions were about that were in 2013. But then finally, um, in 2014, they officially announced the creation of an administration, uh, the Dem Democratic Autonomous Administration. And this was like a decentralized system. So you had like sort of a Switzerland Switzerland model of like having a, a in those free enclaves that they were basically they liberated from the regime they created like um, canton administrations there so all these areas they had their own canton administration in Kuban and Jazeera and in Afrin but they were not connected to each other they were all separated because in the areas between that you had the regime you had the rebels there was like a lot of fighting going on there but the goal was actually in the end to unite all these administrations um, in 2016, um, the situation changed. I will talk about it later. Like uh, They started to work with the Americans since the Battle of Kobani. So the YPG, they liberated also, uh, and the SDF delivered also Arabic areas. So then uh, it started to change. So in the beginning, it was a very Kurdish administration. It was just Kurdish enclaves. But in 2016, already it included also our Arab majority areas, like, for instance, Tal Abiyad. Uh, they liberated Manbij. 
so they decided to create like a federal system. Uh, but this was very opposed. Uh, the, the Americans were not very happy with it. The Russians were not happy with it. The regime was not happy with it. I mean, there were a lot of people that were not so happy with this federal declaration. They thought it was going a little bit too far. Um, and in the beginning also, it included the word Rojava. So a few months later, they decided to remove the word Rojava because they said this system, it's not an ethnic Kurdish uh, administration. It's a uh, like a multi-ethnic administration. So that's why they decided to remove the word Rojava, although a lot of Kurds, they didn't find that such a good idea. They were like sort of opposed to it. There were a lot of criticism of this. Uh, but they said like this administration is not anymore these free Kurdish enclaves. Um, then later on in 2018, they created even a different administration. Uh, they created the administration of the northeast of Syria. Um, and this was also different because at that time, they controlled a very large area. They controlled, they lost Afrin to Turkey. I will talk about that later. They lost Afrin uh, in like a, a Turkish occupation attack when they attacked Afrin uh, and they occupied Afrin like after three months. There was a lot of displacement there. A lot of people from Afrin were displaced to other areas. Um, but the areas they controlled then, it was quite large and it also included uh, the countryside of Derezor and Raqqa. Uh, in 2016, um, they still said Raqqa has the option to join the system. It was sort of separate. But with this latest move in 2018, basically all um, seven regions are united in one administration uh, in Aina Isa. To make it a little bit more clear, uh, I'll show it on a map. So you see here that, um, so this very large area, you can see like, I like it first started, you can see here in the Kurdish enclaves, like in 2013, and then, the Kurds almost lost Kobani, but with U.S. support and with their own initiative, they managed to defeat ISIS here. And then after, when the Kobani battle, the cooperation started with the Americans, then they expanded to this very large area here. But then um, in 2018, I think in March, uh, they lost uh, Afrin to Turkey when Turkey attacked it after the Russians withdrew uh, from Afrin. So there was a deal between Russia uh, and Turkey uh, to Russian troops to leave and then Turkey to attack. Um, so you see the situation that actually now when you drive, I was the like first time in Rojava, I think in 2013. And like now when you see this vast area, if you drive through it, it's like very, it has become like increasingly big. Um, so sometimes it's a bit surprising how big it has become, like how much success they have had. Uh, and now they control around 25% to 30% or probably even more than 30%, including very rich oil fields uh, in the Derezor area, but also Ramalan. And they also control important dams. Um, I'll talk a little bit also in the book, I talk about the development of the security institutions. Well, the most important one is the YPG. I mean, before that, uh, before the YPG, they were called the Yegeke. Uh, but basically, officially, when uh, the Kurds took these small enclaves in 2012, uh, the YPG was announced, the People's Protection Units. And they also created the Asaj, which means in Kurdish security. Uh, and the Asaj is basically the internal police, basically. Um, later also they started with conscription, or they called themselves the self-duty forces, that's in 2014. So especially in the Kurdish enclaves, they started to conscript people. Um, so that also had some opposition, we did surveys and there were people criticizing this move because some young men, they don't want to serve 
in the in the army um, they want to continue their studies but if you're studying then there's an exemption but for other people there's no exemption unless you have like family members that died in for instance the YPG um, then in October 2015, the most important development, that's after the battle from Kobani, they created the Syrian Democratic Forces. Because in the beginning, in 2012, as you see on the map, the area was just Kurdish. But after the Kobani battle, the area became much more Arab majority. Uh, so they created for this the reason uh, the Syrian Democratic Forces. Some people say that this is just an American project. Uh, but I disagree with that because already before uh, 2015, uh, in September 2014, they had like a joint operations room between the YPG and the Free Syrian Army, uh, b uh, between the YPG and Syrian rebels. And that was actually the basis of the SDF, that was like the predecessor, uh, predecessor of the SDF. So they liberated this very large area, um, which is called the northeast of Syria. And recently, when I was in Syria, they also started to create military councils. Uh, so you see now there's uh, talks between uh, Turkey and the US about uh, establishing like a safe zone, or some call it a security mechanism. Uh, so these military uh, councils are actually created uh, for that reason. Because in the past, for instance, when I was in the Battle of Raqqa, you had, for instance, forces coming from Kobani, from Afrin, to fight in Raqqa, because they needed all the forces they had to fight against Daesh. But now, because the fight against Daesh is over, at least, like, on the ground, we're fighting for territory. I mean, there's still a fight against sli sleeper cells. Uh, they created these military councils to basically local, locally represent these certain regions. So you have a council in Tel Abiyad, you have one in Hasek, uh, you have them in 12 different uh, small areas. Um, I think the most interest interesting thing about the book is basically the survey results. Uh, so one interesting thing about uh, the survey results is the religion, uh, the religious part. So I mean the majority, um, 116 out of 180, identify as a Muslim. But if you look to the political identification, it's just like 8 out of 180 that uh, identify uh, religion as like uh, a political identity. So like almost most of the Syrian Kurdish movements in Syria, there's like almost no, for instance in Iraqi Kurdistan, you have a lot of Islamist parties. But if you actually look among the Kurdish parties in Syria, there's almost none. And I think this is one of the explanations that for instance, religion is not chosen as a political identity. Well, I think if you look to other parts of Syria, for instance, the rebel-held uh, areas, you probably have a lot of uh, Islamist uh, groups, so you have more religion as an identification. Um, also, another interesting thing is that a lot of people were happy that there is an administration. Um, they say, like, uh, we can speak in our own language, the, the, the government uses our own language. Um, they were also happy with, with the security, for instance. They said, like, 105 out of 180 people said the first thing that identified with the administration was basically security. Uh, and then another important thing is a lot of participants also choose what do they identify Rojava as, and they mentioned women rights. So uh, 89 uh, out of 180, they said this uh, second after security that uh, women rights is a sort of important uh, issue in Rojava. And you see that, for instance, with uh, the women councils that are created in several areas, uh, they ban polygamy. Um, I mean, and every uh, administration official, they have a co-chair. So you have like every, every organization has a co-chair man and a co-chair as a, a co-woman. So like women rights is very important in this new administration. Um, and yeah, and also another important issue is the commune. Um, so 
I didn't, I forgot to tell this, so the administration in, in northeastern Syria is built on the idea of uh, Abdullah Ocalan. Uh, he came with the idea to create sort of, um, in the past he was advocating for an independent Kurdistan, but slowly he changed his mind and he was then advocating for uh, democratic autonomy. So to have like sort of an autonomous uh, administration in Iraq, Syria, Turkey and Iran. And basically what in Rojava they're doing, they're implementing his ideas. And the idea of Ocalan was to create a sort of um, bottom-up democracy to have like local communes, so like like sort of local small councils and neighborhoods to discuss like daily politics and life, and then basically that those decisions made bottom-up will go up, and then like the administration will take the decision from the local people. But what we've seen with the communes that they started this system to build it up slowly in all the villages, also in the Arab areas. But from the uh, surveys, we have seen that the participation in these communes is quite limited, and also that a lot of people they don't see it as a participatory body. They see it more as like giving uh, diesel, uh, more as a service body. So the idea was of the commune system to have sort of a Athenian democracy, like a lo local level uh, bottom-up politics. But in reality, a lot of people see the commune just as like a service body. So you get, you go there to get your idea. You go there uh, to get free diesel. So it's like it's a little bit uh, complication uh, that a lot of people have not seen. Um, but in general, like people are are happy with the um, the security and with uh, the women rights, but like the commune system, it's not really well uh, implemented on the ground. Um, also, one part we discuss in the book is the regional relations. So we discuss what are the relations between the YPG and the US, between the YPG and Russia. What are the relations with Iran, with Iraq, with Turkey? But I mean that's too many topics to discuss for this presentation. So what's an interesting thing, uh, what I found, uh, I interviewed some former US officials and ex-US officials. Um, and one of the US officials said the reason they defended Kobani, it was even if it was Syrian opposition, they would have defended it uh, because they started with an air campaign basically to defeat ISIS. So when they saw all these ISIS fighters going towards Kobani in 2014, the US saw this as a good opportunity to give like a major blow uh, to ISIS. And actually before 2014, there was no cooperation between the US uh, and the PYD or the YPG. Uh, before that, even sometimes the US in State Department briefings, they were criticizing the PYD. But after the Kobani struggle, when this partnership was established between the YPG and the US, uh, during the Kobani battle, then the US military saw that working with the YPG was very effective. Um, before that, for instance, the Pentagon, the CIA, they, they provided thousands of, of, of uh, millions of dollars to, to support these rebel groups, but it had no effect. And then after Kobani, like, basically the YPG became like the major partner. And this developed all the way to, to now, basically. Um, but what we've also seen that after ISIS was defeated in, in uh, Baghus, in, in Deir Azor, that Trump suddenly made like tweets saying, okay, we're going to withdraw. Um, so this makes it like very difficult because the US mission in Northeast Syria is just fighting ISIS. They say we are not there to create autonomy. I mean, the Russians, the Russian government, because they are against this US-Kurdish partnership, let's say, uh, Russia always say, accuses them of creating autonomy, but in reality, it's only like counterterrorism. So for instance, now also when the US is saying, is that we are here to defeat ISIS sleeper cells, because until now there are still ISIS sleeper cell attacks. Um, but the US until now, they're still staying. Uh, I mean, Trump 
he is now saying we're not gonna we're gonna withdraw some troops but some troops will stay and also i think french and the uk they promised to keep some more troops to basically support the u.s efforts and there were also attempts by the u.s to talk to germany and holland and other european countries to see if they can contribute something uh for northeast of syria but it's still you see even i think yesterday uh or today erdogan said something uh we're gonna send one million uh one million refugees from turkey to northeastern syria and if um and they want to have this safe zone under control so the idea was there was like a, a security mechanism created uh, in a deal between US and Turkey, but everybody really doesn't know exactly what does this mean. Is it a safe zone? Will it be under Turkish control? Will it not be under Turkish control? So one day Erdogan is saying, if US doesn't implement my wish, then in three weeks we're going to launch an operation. And then at the same time, for instance, Salah Muslim said recently, there's not going to be any Turkish troop in the safe zone. So it's like a very uh, confusing situation with Turkey and US. And the US is basically sort of mediating between Turkey and then with the SDF. So it's a very complicated situation. So um, to make some concluding remarks, uh, I found it a bit difficult to present the books the book because it has so many um, uh, it discusses so many issues in, in Rojava and northeastern Syria but basically what I found from the book is that the YPG in the SDF was one of the most successful actors in the fight against Daesh in Syria uh, this is was basically since the Kobani battle the US military found out that they were quite effective in fighting especially with US air support all the way to Bahuz um, but they have also issues for instance if you look to the Kurdistan region uh, in Iraq, it's recognized by the Iraqi constitution after the fall of Saddam. But in Rojava and northeast of Syria, they don't have a recognition uh, by Damascus. So this is one of the reasons why every time uh, the administration and the SDF and the SDC said we are ready to negotiate with Baghdad. And the reason for that is because they want to solve this problem of non-recognition. Because if you don't have non-recognition, I mean, you, you, you basically, it's very difficult to have humanitarian support. For instance, the UN, they only work with Damascus. Um, so they're trying to reach this deal, but the problem is that Damascus uh, only wants to go back to 2011. So Damascus says we want to control all of the territory again, like we did before 2011. And basically officials of the SDF and SDC say this is not possible, because after all this mass slaughter, all these thousands of people that have been killed, uh, mostly at the hands basically of, of uh, the Syrian regime in Russia, it's not acceptable to keep Syria as it was before 2011. There has to be some uh, change in the, in the mentality of Damascus. But sadly, this has not happened. Uh, and basically, for Damascus, it's always good to have Turkey threatening, uh, threatening the Kurds, because if Turkey threatens, uh, then, for instance, what you saw in Afrin, that before uh, Turkey attacked Afrin, Russia said, if you give Afrin to the regime, then we will not allow Turkey to attack. So basically, Russia and Damascus, they would like Turkey to attack, because if Turkey attacks, then the Kurds have no choice to, to see, seek like a deal with Damascus or Moscow, basically to prevent the Turkish invasion. Um, yeah, I mentioned the survey results before. And I must say that I still, even though there was this recent deal that I mentioned uh, on a security mechanism or on a safe zone, uh, there's still always a threat of Turkey to attack again. Because you hear Erdogan recently saying, after three weeks, if they don't accept our demands, we could attack again. So that's why it's always a problem for Rojava, for northeastern Syria. There's always this Turkish threat. The US is only interested in counterterrorism. Russia just supports Assad till the end, like Russia has a political project. Uh, Russia doesn't care so much about counterterrorism, but more about protecting Assad. 
Uh, and there's this ongoing threat by Turkey, but also I must say also the Syrian regime. For instance, recently some uh, sleeper cells were arrested and actually they said they received orders from uh, security officials in Damascus to carry out attacks in northeastern Syria. And there's also, like, I didn't mention so much, so you have all these councils, these multi-ethnic councils created in this administration. And like, for instance, tribal officials, Arabs, Turkmen, they get daily threats from uh, unknown numbers from the regime, or uh, also they get threatened by Turkey. And there have been assassinations. For instance, Omar Alush was most likely assassinated by Turkey. Uh, there was a region, uh, recently, um, a few months ago, a tribal leader, Raqqa, that was killed, that was most likely the regime. So there's always this pressure from Turkey and also from Damascus and Iran because they don't want this project to succeed, they want this project to fail. So I hope I tried to give a short overview of all the situation, like the situation in northeast of Syria, but I think it's easier for people uh, to ask me questions and then I'll answer them. I think that's easier. Thank you. Thank you, Vladimir. Thank you so much. That was a wonderfully concise and clear uh, presentation and coverage of a number of wide-ranging and complex topics. A huge amount has happened in the last six, seven years, and I thought you handled that brilliantly well. That gives us huge food for thought leading into discussion, question and answer. Obviously, you couldn't tackle every topic. There are a number of other areas we might want to uh, delve into further, such as the, uh, the tensions within the Kurdish movement within Syria between the older parties and the PYD, the KRI, KRG, we didn't have time to get onto that, relations with them. Uh, be interesting, to, I think, to know more about the content of your surveys. That, that material is particularly fascinating and new and fresh and important. Um, a number of areas we may want to throw out for further discussion. But I open the floor to you all. Um, please, when you, before you ask a question or make a remark, would you just briefly introduce yourself and try to keep your comments or questions as brief as possible, please. And wait for the microphone because we need it for the recording. Thank you. Gentlemen at the back. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much, Vladimir. I'm Mehmet Kurt from the LSE. Um, my question is about the perception of uh, self-administration. I mean, you briefly talked about it, but I wonder how people perceive uh, the self-administration, the new concept. Is it just only about the sovereignty that people actually protect themselves and the YPG and the basically the new administration is kind of a security for people living there or could you please elaborate further about like the daily life practices and relations, how it has changed the processes? And I also wonder about the tensions between Arabs and the Kurds, especially considering that there has been long um, tensions between some Arab tribes and the Kurds there. Could you please tell me about Shammars and Sharabis and the Kurds and how these new dynamics affect these relations? And the last question uh, is about the Khaznevis. Um, as far as I know, they are quite powerful in northern Syria, or they were, and how they position themselves in this process and the adherence of Khaznevis, how they approach the new administration. Thank you. As Mehmet has offered you three questions, perhaps you'd like to take them together now before we move on. Yeah. Um about the perception of the self-administration. So obviously one of the first things that people care about at this point because of all this threat from ISIS and, and Turkey that a lot of the focus is on like security. 
Um, and uh, of course, uh, which is not covered in the surveys, but still people in Northeast Syria are still a little bit afraid, afraid about the future. So a lot of people are still afraid, like, because, for instance, one month Turkey threatens, the other day uh, regime threatens. So they're always still a little bit, they don't know what U.S. wants. So, like, people are, are scared about the future. They don't know what's, what's going to happen. So they do appreciate the YPG and, and the SDF's uh, sacrifices, but they're still, like, a little bit unsure what's going to happen. Um, and also, as what I mentioned, is that although they appreciate the security, like people still don't understand what is this commune system. Um, they have like difficulties understanding this new sit system that was created. So, um, like they don't understand what is this commune meant for. Like, is it services or is it just like a participatory body, basically? Um, and like. Of course, you have also, as you mentioned, the intra-Kurdish tensions. So you have, like, for instance, supporters of uh, of the NKSE that are very critical of that administration and don't want to join it. And you, of course, have the basic supporters. But we should also not forget, I didn't cover that in the beginning, that in the beginning, the PYD of the beginning of the Syrian civil war was a very small party. Like, they had very, uh, uh, there was support. Uh, but, like, in the beginning of the Syrian civil war, they were a very small party. And they became, like, very big. Uh, so it showed that despite actually the NKSE, um, the Kurdish National Council, was backed by uh, Barzani and the Karaji in the beginning, was actually had more supporters. But slowly, that people started to see that on the ground that uh, YPG, the Asais, were providing the security. So their support was growing. Then they had the administration. So you also have people from different backgrounds that joined the administration because they need to make a living. They joined the SDF, the YPG. Uh, and also, like, the YPG was the only one basically defending those areas. Uh, so that was also a reason that people joined the YPG. Uh, but also, it should be mentioned that there was a lot of immigration. Uh, a lot of people, they went to Europe, they went to Karaji, some went to Turkey. So there's also, like, a huge vacuum. A lot of people, they left uh, Rojava, they left northern Syria. So I always have to laugh about people that saying, oh, the Kurds want to change the demography of Arab-majority towns because they don't have this demography. Like, so many people, they left to Europe. Um, so it will be difficult for the Kurds to change the demography in, in northern Syria because they don't have the, the population numbers to, to do that, basically. They have so many people that left. I mean, uh, I saw recently a media report of some Ezidi village where, like, just the parents are left and her three sons are in Europe somewhere, and those three sons are not returning. So there's, like, a, a population, a, a large population that left. Um, about the Ghaznawi, uh, I think you're referring to the family of Sheikh Mashouk Ghaznawi who was killed by the Syrian regime. I mean, I don't think they have so much power left unless there's someone here from Rojava that could dispute that fact. But I mean, like, uh, I think his sons, they basically, one of them has a program on one of the pro-administration uh, channels. So I think they're more affiliated or supporting uh, the YPG and the, uh, and the new administration there. Um, um, but you don't see so much. I, I don't think. I think his sons they went to Europe, so you don't see them on the ground. But I don't think they have like a large influence. Like maybe someone else can answer that question. But I didn't cover that so much in my research. Um, about the Arab Kurdish dynamics, well, um, you should not remember that in 2004, um, uh, tribes from Derazor were part of. There was this football match between a Kurdish team and, and uh, let's say an Arab team. Uh, in Kamishli, and then afterwards there was like a uprising when there was like a fight in the football match, and then there was like a crackdown by the Syrian regime, and the Syrian regime basically brought tribes from Derazor to this area to crush uh, the Kurdish uprising. 
Uh, and apart from that, also, uh, of course, uh, in the 1970s and the 1980s, there was like a policy by the Syrian regime to have this Arab belt policy. So they were bringing uh, Arabs from other areas in Syria, uh, brought them uh, to uh, Kurdish uh, areas and tried to change the demography. So they called this the Arab belt policy. It was mostly in Hasaka province. So there's this historical dynamic of the regime basically putting Arabs against the Kurds. But... Um, so you have this sort of settlers uh, in in the in the um, areas of Hasaka, um, but um, the PYD and the YPD they decided not, for instance, to create more tensions by saying, okay, all those Arab settlers they have to leave. They say we have to solve this after the the conflict is over. So despite that, some people say, oh, they are trying to change the demography in the Arab areas, even in the areas that the regime changed the demography, they are not trying to kick out those settlers. But it doesn't mean that there is issues because we have seen, for instance, protests in Derazor about services recently because they say, oh, it's like there's not services, we're being discriminated. Uh, so you do have like tensions between Arabs and Kurds. I mean that, for instance, you have certain people, they say, for instance, sort of, sort of these administrations that they set up, they are not, um, I mean, they are Arab majority, but maybe Kurds are leading it. But this is like a whole new experience, like it needs a lot of time. And also, of course, you have Turkey, you have the Syrian regime, so any Arab or Turkmen or others that work with the administration, they can get targeted. And also one of the problems for the administration is that because it's not unclear, it's like unclear what U.S. is doing in Syria. So also they don't know what's going to happen in the future. So you have some Arab tribal leaders, they're saying we, we are staying neutral because we don't know that after 10 years what's going to happen, if the U.S. will still be there. Uh, is this administration still going to survive if, for instance, the U.S. could pull out? So this whole U.S. withdrawal uh, threat by Trump, it made like a lot of more insecurity. And also we saw, for instance, that um, in 2017, for instance, when uh, the U.S. Uh, didn't stop Iranian-backed militias from taking Kirkuk in, in Iraq, in, in Kirkuk and disputed territories, uh, in 2017, in October, that U.S. didn't do anything to stop those Iranian-backed militias. And then later in Afrin, when basically the West, they sort of softly condemned the Turkish attack uh, against Afrin, apart from Boris Johnson. Um, like, the situation was, like, showed for Arabs also that, like, there's not, we don't know if they're going to get this support, for instance, if Turkey attacks. So this creates also, like, even if Arabs want to join, uh, still a lot of them, they joined the administrations. If you look to Raqqa and, and the Derazor Civil Council, they have a lot of educated people, people from local tribes that joined this, these new councils. Uh, but this threat of Turkey and the regime, it always creates problems that people are afraid, like, we don't know what's going to happen. So this is not only for Arabs, it's also for Kurds. Like, this uncertainty about the future, it, it makes it very difficult for the administration to get support sometimes. Thank you. Very generous. You keep that because it's not boring. Yes, gentlemen here and then there, please. Let's do it quick. Two Thank you very much. Uh, my, my name is Vaisi. I'm from SOAS. I've got other two questions. Uh, the first question is actually about the refugees. I mean, the, whether there's conditions that the refugees, not just from Europe, but also from uh, South Kurdistan, whether there that these people can come back because there were, you know, recently actually there was some news that many refugees from Bashur and I mean from South Kurdistan they went back to Rojava. But some of them, as you also mentioned, because of this conscription as a self-military duty, which is actually also limited to six months, I think. 
that they don't come because they worry that they will have to go to the to serve uh, in the military. That's the first question. The second question says about the threat of uh, Turkey, whether to what extent the Kurds are ready, Kurdish forces are ready to respond to Turkish uh, attack in case of the, like, uh, the Turkey start, uh, launch an op operation. You think would it be like Afrin? Because the, the representative of Kurdish uh, authority mentioned actually that they will respond and uh, the, I mean, this, I mean, they will not like, it's not like Afrin that they will just uh, surrender and uh, just leave. And the third question about the Saudi and Israel, because recently there was some, actually, I, I just heard that the, some Israeli bases are established and they even attacked the Iranian forces in Iraq. And that was the allegation by, made by uh, Saudi, uh, by Iraqi representatives or government uh, intelligence, for example. And whether they, and Saudi, whether they also support uh, the Kurdish forces, because there's also, you know, tension between Turkey and all the things to what extent are they involved actually thank you very much thank you very much and we'll take bill thank you uh, bill park king's college um the kind of thinking or reasoning behind turkey's threats to um the kurdish enclaves in syria is is the allegation observation that they are linked to pkk um and I suppose my question, I, I find it hard to get a feel for this, as I haven't been to Rojava. Um, how many sort of Turkish-based Kurds are engaged in northern Syria in the administration or militarily? Uh, or how much is it, a, insofar as this makes any sense, a more purely Syrian Kurdish uh, operation? So that's kind of my question. And I guess it's a feel that I'm looking for or any assessment of numbers would be quite interesting because I just can't get a sense of it. Thank you. Would you mind just passing to your neighbour? Yeah, thank you. Uh, Gary Kent, all-party parliamentary group on the Kurdistan region in Iraq. A bit of a mouthful. Um, I'd like you, Vladimir, good to see you again, to download the key aspects of the relationship between uh, Rojava and the KRG and particular parties and what are the key issues at the moment. And the other thing is, if you look at the map, there's not much um, between uh, Rojava and the Mediterranean, relatively speaking. And uh, so, so what, what are the prospects, uh, in your view, of that gap being uh, reached? Because that obviously would make a tremendous difference to both the Kurds in, uh, and their allies in Syria, but also in the Kurdistan region. Thank you. Thank you, Gary. That's more than enough. Um, so one thing about the refugees, um, like um, it's true that uh, like there's like a lot of refugees, especially in South Kurdistan, in, in Iraqi Kurdistan. But I think the number of people from Iraqi Kurdistan that have went back is like like there's a few hundreds that have returned. It's not like very large numbers. And I think also many Syrian Kurds that went to Iraq and Kurdistan, their first goal was to go to Europe, probably. And then they started to have a life in Iraq and Kurdistan. They got jobs there. Uh, so the situation was different. So I think also for those people there, like, um, I mean, one of the things also that maybe uh, that some people return because the economic situation has uh, has like uh, is not so good anymore as, for instance, uh, several years ago in Iraqi Kurdistan. So maybe some people think of going back to Rojava because maybe economically it's easier. They have houses there. Their parents are there. 
but still I don't see like a very large movement of Syrian Kurds returning from the KRG uh, to Rojava and I think this is also one of the reasons of course is the military conscription if it's like young men although it's just like six months uh, but another reason is probably because uh, they don't know what the future is for there and they probably already have their own lives in, in the Kurdistan region uh, and some of them they will probably still want to go to Europe um, about the threat of Turkey, will it be like Afrin? Well, I was recently in, in northern Syria, Rojava, and I talked with many YPG officials, SDF officials. So what they are saying is that Afrin is very different from the other areas. Uh, so Afrin, it was surrounded. Uh, on the other hand, it was surrounded by Turkish observation posts and um, uh, Turkish-backed Islamist groups. Uh, and then, on the other hand, the only road to Afrin was controlled by the Syrian regime. Um, so um, the regime, they allowed the YPG to send fighters uh, through this road. I should show it on a map because it's quite difficult. So you had this road going from Mumbich to here. So they were sending people to, to, to Afrin. Uh, but sometimes um, the Syrian regime was like limiting ammunition to go there, limiting uh, uh, support. Um, so it was very difficult for them because it was very isolated. And also, of course, uh, Turkey had all these airstrikes and, and, and Russia, they allowed Turkey to attack. But remember when uh, Russia didn't allow Turkey to attack with air support for a few days, then suddenly like the whole front stopped, like the Turkish attack really slowed down. So what YPG and SDF are saying, like if Turkey would not have this air support, then it will be very difficult for Turkey to do anything. Another point is that because it's not Afrin, it's not isolated. So, for instance, if you see if they, for instance, would um, attack Tel Abyad, uh, which is around here somewhere, if they, if they would attack Tel Abyad, I mean, they can send reinforcements from all the other areas. So that's what also what uh, General Maslum Kobani said. So if Turkey attacks, then we have to uh, withdraw forces from Derizor Raqqa and send them uh, to this area. And this will also lead to a resurgence of ISIS. Uh, Iran and regime could come in these areas. So I personally think for the West and the international community, especially because of this anti-Iran policy, they don't want Iran and the regime to get stronger. Because if Turkey attacks, uh, then the regime will probably enter Raqqa and Derizor, maybe even Tabqa. So I don't think that the U.S. is very willing. Uh, it's not that they want to just protect the Kurds. I mean, they also have their own self-interests. And uh, I don't think that they want to have this whole chaos. So that's why I think for Turkey... First of all, it's not very easy to fight a frontline battle on 600 kilometers, like kilometers border. And second of all, it's also not in the interest of the U.S. So I don't think that the U.S. will allow Turkey to do this. Uh, and Turkey is just like all these threats from Erdogan. It's more to put pressure to get more concessions from the U.S. So I think it's very unlikely that Turkey attacks, but we never know. I mean, they also attacked Afrin, but in Afrin, basically Russia allowed it. If the U.S., France, U.K., and other coalition partners allow Turkey to attack, then it will be very difficult for the YPG to defend themselves because if they don't, if Turkey uses their air force, I mean, they have all these fortifications, tunnels, and other things on the border. They have a large force, but at some point you cannot fight against the air force. I mean, it's very difficult, but it would be a very costly battle if Turkey attacks this area because it's so, so large. So it's not going to be a three months battle like Afrin. It's going to be complete chaos. Uh, so I don't think the U.S. wants that. So I think it's very unlikely that, will, that this will happen. Uh, about this Israeli-Saudi uh, allegations, I think this is like propaganda. Um, there's no Israeli basis in, in northeast of Syria. Um, it was an outlet that is very close to uh, certain countries. 
um, that was based on very uh, anonymous sources with, with no, you cannot check where these sources are coming from. I didn't hear any Iraqi official saying on record that uh, actually there were, I think was a Iranian-backed commander was actually talking about Azerbaijan maybe hosting Israel. Uh, to do attacks on, on Iranian-backed forces in Iraq. I really doubt that uh, the SDF or YPG want to be part of this anti-Iranian campaign. I mean, um, they want the U.S. to stay. They also have an interest, for instance, to keep Iran out of the areas they control, like Raqqa and Derizor. For instance, they have arrested a few pro-Hezbollah um, uh, fighters, uh, two of them, like recently. But they are not want to be part of this huge Iran-US thing. They are willing to fight against ISIS, but their main mission is against ISIS. They're not interested to get part of this anti-Iranian mission. And the Saudis, they were, they visited. I was there when uh, one of the main Saudi officials visited Aina Issa. Um, but the main visits of Saudi are more related to uh, reconstruction because they paid millions of dollars to the US. Uh, Trump doesn't want to spend one dollar in Syria. So what happened? Saudi and other Gulf countries, they stepped in uh, to pay money for stabilization. Um, and as mentioned before, that there's this problem of non-recognition. Like, for instance, in Iraq, the UN, they work everywhere. NGOs, they work everywhere, both in the Kurdistan region and in the rest of Iraq. But in northeast of Syria, like, basically, they're NGOs, but they're basically operating without permission from the Syrian government. So they're like sort of like just cross the border and it's like cross-border NGO operations, but it's not recognized by Damascus. And even Damascus, they prevent aid from going to this area. So I think this article, not to go too far, but based this article, it's just propaganda. I don't think there's anything like that. Saudis are just focusing. Also Saudis, also Israel, they don't, for instance, want uh, the U.S. to withdraw from northeast of Syria and that Iran takes over this area. They also don't want that. And they also don't want Turkey to attack. You know that Saudi has very bad relations with uh, Turkey now also uh, because Turkey supports the Muslim Brotherhood and Saudi sees the Muslim Brotherhood as terrorists. So for Saudi, it would also be, uh, they see, for instance, northeast of Syria as a bulwark against Turkish influence. And that's why you also had this statement from the Arab League condemning the attack on Afrin. Um, but I don't think there's this Saudi-Israeli conspiracy that's just propaganda. Um, to go back to the question of Bill, well, first of all, I recommend you to read the book because it's mentioned there with this, some statistics about uh, Kurds that um, joined uh, the YPG from Turkey. Um, I think especially during the Kobani battle, there was a lot of Kurds from Turkey because there was this uh, like before that, there was never a call like that. There was an open call for Kurds from all parts of, of Kurdistan or, or from other Arab countries to, to join the fight for Kobani. So if you see the Kobani battle, they really have a lot of people that died that were originally Kurds from Turkey. Like some people say, oh, it's all the fight by Kobani people. But in general, there was a lot of people also from Kurds from Turkey that sacrificed their lives in the fight against ISIS in this battle. But if you look uh, to the to the official uh, commanders and, and officials, almost like there's no public official that has occurred from Turkey. I mean, you do have some Kurds from, from Turkey that play a role in, in the YPG and, and this kind of stuff, or maybe people that in the past they were in the mountains. So with the mountains, I mean, maybe in the past they were with the PKK, because we should not forget also something I didn't mention that uh, in the past there were like a large number of Kurds that joined the PKK when the PKK was in Syria. Um, that joined uh, the fight uh, against the Turkish uh, government um, when Ocalan was hosted in Syria until there was an agreement between Turkey and, and, uh, and Syria, the Adana uh, agreement. After that, 
a lot of people like connected to the PYD and the PKK, they were actually arrested, they were tortured in jails, like many people I've talked to, they were in jails. But if you look, I mean, the PYD obviously is like uh, has relations, but I would not say that there's like a large majority of Kurds from Turkey that are controlling everything. Like the main commander is Maslum Kobani, who's a Kurd from Syria. You have uh, Nevros Ahmed, who's the co-chair of the SDF. Uh, she's also a Kurd from Syria. But you have like certain people that had this experience in the mountains in the past. So they're not Kurds from Syria, but they have this mountain experience, let's say. Um, but is this mean that this justifies what Turkey is doing? No, it doesn't justify what Turkey is doing. Because, for instance, when the Iraqi Kurds did the referendum, Turkey was very much opposed to it, and that was Berzani doing that. There was no PKK there. Uh, there's also no PKK in Libya, and Turkey is also intervening in the Libya war. Um, they're intervening in other conflicts. They're also very active in Africa and other countries like Sudan. Uh, they have military bases in Qatar. So what has this to do with YPG or PKK? So I think this is just an excuse, basically. Basically, Erdogan said, we don't want to repeat the experience of northern Iraq. So what they said, they, we don't want to have a second time that the Kurds have the opportunity to create like an autonomous a system. So they basically regret what happened in Iraq because remember when the U.S. Uh, overthrew Saddam, Turkey was sort of stopped the U.S. They didn't want to be part of this U.S. war against Saddam. And what, what, uh, what ended up, like the result was that actually Turkey was completely excluded from the whole um, situation after the fall of Saddam. And actually they also threatened, uh, they actually, uh, Turkish uh, soldiers were arrested that were trying to assassinate the governor of Kirkuk at that time. So they were very unhappy with this autonomy. I mean, later they established uh, trade relations with the KRG in a very much later phase. But in the beginning they were very much opposed. And also during the referendum we've seen that Turkey was very much opposed to Kurdish uh, aspirations for autonomy in the region. Doesn't matter if it's the PKK, the KDP, YPG, it doesn't matter so much. Um, about the Rojava-KRG uh, relations, um, I didn't talk much about that, but basically it goes back to um, in the beginning, in 2012, you had the Kurdish National Council, which was established with the support of Masoud Barzani, the, now the head of the, the KDP. And you had the Democratic Union Party. So they had uh, three agreements. The, the First, there were two Erbil agreements and the Duhok agreement. So the idea was to create sort of a joint Kurdish administration in Rojava. But because both sides, they could never agree, especially one of the things that the YPD said, there can be only one military force. We cannot have two military forces because, for instance, we saw what happened in Iraqi Kurdistan in the 1990s. There was a huge civil war between the PUK and the KDP. So they said, like, you cannot have, like, Syrian Kurdish Peshmerga forces creating a second force. And also, there were, like, disagreements because they have a different ideology. Like, the NKSA, they want to create sort of a Kurdistan region of Syria. Uh, while the PYD, let's say, they want more like a multi-ethnic um, administration with Arab Kurds and others. Uh, and also the fact that the NKC is part of the Syrian opposition backed by Turkey. Um, Turkey also is making problems because they put pressure on the KRG and the NKC also to not work with the PYD, to not recognize these administrations. So since these agreements failed, since 2000, between 2012 and 2014, there were agreements, they all failed. Um, since then, actually, the, the, the NKSA, um, so they didn't want to join these administrations. Um, they didn't want to recognize them. So there was always a tension between the NKSA, that's basically an exile, and the, the, the administrations close to the PYD in, in, in Rojava. 
And, and the problem is that the NKSA doesn't recognize the, the, this administration because they say they are legitimate and they think they should play a bigger role. So you have always this issue that, okay, they don't want to join. Uh, so it it's like, creates like sort of a, a status quo. And there were people that tried to create better relations, for instance, Peter Galbraith, uh, Peter Galbraith and Bernard Kushner. Uh, they went to uh, negotiate, to mediate between the two sides, but until now it has not uh, succeeded. There was also a French initiative to create better relations between the NKSA uh, and the PYD, but it always has failed because there's always like certain demands that the PYD cannot accept. For instance, they said there should be one military force. NKSA people can join the administration. Uh, and the NKSA said, no, this we don't recognize the YPG. We want to have two military forces. Uh, we want to have more, a uh, bigger chunk of, of the power in, in, in Rojava. And the uh, PYD and the YPG saying, well, I mean, it has been so many years. We are the ones that sacrifice the most in this war against ISIS. We cannot just give you half of the Kurdish areas and control it. So there was always this tension. And that's why this tension also translates to tensions between the KRG and the administration in northeast of Syria. Uh, but I must say that um, during the Raqqa campaign, there were some time before, before the Raqqa campaign, it was sometimes very difficult to cross the border. But after the Raqqa campaign, the relation improved a lot. There was more economic and trade. Uh, the border access was more so like for instance there were a lot of western journalists that uh, covered the campaign of Raqqa but also if you go to uh, northeast Syria now you still meet like everywhere there are NGOs working in the northeast of Syria I mean there's also maybe was pressure by the US on the KRG to allow more humanitarian support but I think the relation became uh, much better since 2017 um, but now the situation again is getting a little bit more difficult because Turkey is putting again pressure and Turkey is carrying out a lot of operations, attacks uh, on the border areas of the KRG. And we saw this incident with the diplomat. There were also high level people from the PKK killed. So all this yeah, fights with Turkey attacking and it also creates more tensions in, in with Rojava. But until now, I think trade is still going. If you go to there, you see like every day there's a lot of trucks coming in. Uh, and also, I think there's a sort of de facto deal that people can cross from both sides uh, the border. Uh, so the situation is at least much better than when I was entering Syria because when in 2016 I went uh, to northeast of Syria, I couldn't even cross the border officially because they said all foreign journalists, they are not allowed to go uh, to Rojava at that time. Uh, but after uh, the Raqqa campaign, it became much better. The relation improved. But we don't know that with Turkey pressuring uh, um, the KRG and these tensions uh, that it could worsen again. And I think for this also, uh, France recognizes that this is not very good for the stability and that's why they're trying to find a solution uh, for the Kurdish parties to work together. But I think also uh, Turkey plays a very negative role in trying to pressure also, especially the Kurdish National Council, to not work uh, with the PYD. Um, so that's why you always see Turkey playing a negative count because the NKSA is still part of the Syrian opposition. They don't want to leave this. Uh, at the same time, they don't want, want to recognize the administration. So it's a complicated uh, situation. If you have more questions, you can ask me. Um, and you had one question about the Mediterranean Sea, the, the sea. So um, you see the small corridor here. So um, actually, I forgot to mention that in after um, I was done in Syria, when um, the YPG and, and the Mombich Military Council liberated Mombich in August 2016, 
At that point, Turkey launched uh, the Euphrates Shield operation. Um, so the Turkish army, they haven't done anything against ISIS until 2016. They, they didn't care. There were like a lot of jihadists crossing into Syria. Uh, Turkey didn't do much to stop jihadists from going. Uh, even when uh, Tel Abiyad was controlled by ISIS, there was like cross-border trade in Tel Abiyad and the border was open, the border crossing. But once all these areas were controlled by the YPG and also later the SCF, that Turkey closed down all the border crossings and the whole border now it's like a... Turkey, I think, was more successful in Trump than building a wall because, like, if you go there, like, everywhere there's a big wall on the border. Um, so Turkish intervention in 2016 was meant to stop uh, the YPG and the SDF from moving towards Mombic. So I think this idea that they can reach the sea, it's, it's quite difficult. And even if they would reach, for instance, make this whole, let's say if they control this whole area, it still doesn't mean that they will reach the sea because you have these areas here. Um, uh, they are called Jabal al-Akrad and Jabal al-Turkman. I mean, those are mostly like groups that are active. There are Turkmen groups, uh, Al-Qaeda affiliated groups, and there's the same regime there. So I don't think, even if they would connect this whole area between Afrin and, and, and Derik, I don't think that would mean that they could just go through the sea. Although it would solve a lot of problems also for the KRG because now they're always dependent on, on Iran or Turkey or other countries surrounding them because they're landlocked, the Kurds in general. Um, but I think there was never a realistic prospect from the Kurds like reaching the sea through uh, these areas because there's almost no Kurds there, but also because, I mean, there's not a lot of justification to go there. There's no ISIS there. Um, so, yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Vladimir. You're working hard here. We have a question here. Let me just have a look around the room as well. Good. A few more piling. So let's take the three here in a row. If you will, please, just the lady to your left first. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Hi, thank you very much. I'm Borgio Ostjilik from the University of Cambridge. Um, I'm interested in the extent to which, you mentioned security, but I'm interested in the extent to which um, the ideology surrounding democratic autonomy um, is still relevant um, in uh, northeast Syria and the extent to which it's being implemented. Because you mentioned that um, there was quite low participation in the commune system, that it was misunderstood. So I'm curious as to um, the level of imp implementation in that will then hopefully speak to the, um, the, what you foresee as the durability or the resilience of this form of self-government in northeastern uh, Syria. And following up on that very quickly, um, the last set of relations I think we've, we've talked about, you've talked about many of them, but in terms of the PYD and um, the Assad regime, or the central Syrian government, again, what do you foresee um, as happening um, going forward, again, speaking to the resilience of, of the um, autonomous region in northeastern Syria. Thank you. Thank you. And just hand the microphone back to her neighbour. Thank you. Hi there. Um, Michael Burns. Uh, soon to be LSE, but not yet, so just a nobody. Um, but uh, my question regards the so-called peace corridor, and although there's a lot of confusion and uncertainty about what the exact details of it are going to look like, um, as you mentioned, Vladimir, um, one thing there is a precedent for is uh, Erdogan's threat of sort of weaponization of refugees and saying that it'll send a million across the border, um, especially you know people who uh, weren't originally from that area and didn't flee from there. Um, and the precedent was in Afrin where there was that demographic displacement after people were forced to leave um, because of the bombardment. And um, I'm sorry because of the uncertainty, there's going to be lots of ifs, but if there is that movement of refugees into the peace corridor and the council-based um, self-administrative system remains. Um, are there any plans from you know your conversations with excuse me with officials or 
uh, people just in the communes themselves about how they might integrate those refugees and uh, almost blunt um, the weapon which Turkey is hoping to, to leverage against them with these refugees. Thank you very much. We might just passing it to your left. Couple. Oh, you okay? You're done? Fine. Why don't you take those couple then and then we'll move to that side of the room, which I'm aware I've ignored so far. Yeah. Um, so about the ideological um, implementation. So one interesting thing is that, for instance, the ideology or the rules of an administration are more implemented in the Kurdish areas. So, for instance, if you have the polygamy, um, for instance, in the Arab majority areas, uh, they cannot implement that because if you carry out a ban on polygamy in Derazor, then probably the people will be very unhappy. Um, and also in other areas, they, for instance, they tried to implement it in Tel Abiyad, but there was like resistance against it. So they said, we're not going to temporarily not implement this law. So what they're doing in the Arab majority areas, they're trying to first educate people on women's rights. For instance, they establish women councils, they have women joining the internal security forces, they're joining uh, uh, military forces. So they're trying to slowly change the Arab, um, uh, like for instance, trying to educate the, the people on the system that they're implementing, which is like uh, multi, um, trying to change this sort of nationalistic Ba'ath mentality, Islamism influence that were in this area in the past. But it needs, needs time. And also, for instance, the education system, Arab majority area, it's not the administration education system. It's the regime education system. But with some of the regime uh, indoctrination, it's removed from the... Uh, so basically, they're using the UNCR uh, education system there. Uh, so that's like an interesting aspect that compared to the Arab majority regions and the Kurdish majority regions, that in the Kurdish majority regions, they're implementing the education system, they're implementing uh, 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 gender rights laws, etc. Um, but also what I mentioned that there's this idea that, for instance, the education system is very ideological. What I've seen that if you look to the education books, if you look to them, they're not so much ideological. It's like just teaching the courses. Like some people say, oh, it's all Ochalan, it's all Ochalan. It's not like that. But that doesn't mean that they do try to, um, try to, for instance, they hold meetings with local people about the communes, about the ideology, about Ocalan. Um, so also, again, there's this difference between YPG, like Kurdish fighters and Arab fighters. So Arab fighters, they get less, less training on ideology, for instance, than YPG fighters. So YPG fighters, they get more ideological training, for instance, the system. Uh, they get more about the ideas of Ocalan, about uh, democratic uh, autonomy, etc. But the Arab fighters have this last. But I'm not sure if this is going to change because before, um, before 2018, there were so many battles. So they really didn't have time to train people on ideology. They were just sending them to the front, said, okay, here's the weapon training. After 30 days, yalla, let's go to the front. So now they have more time to, to educate people. So I'm not sure if that's going to change. Um, and also, like, as I said, so... People also now, the women's rights issue is really very strong, especially in the Kurdish area. So, I mean, people, they, they know they cannot mess with women, like they cannot violate their rights. Uh, so there's like very limited uh, violence against women. There's limited polygamy. Um, people that try to abuse women's rights, uh, like there's like women organizations that also make sure that these rights are implemented. So women's rights are very much implemented, but I think the commune system is different because... Um, maybe even themselves, they are not everyone understands what is meant with the commune. So I talked, for instance, recently with someone who's uh, part of this setting up the commune systems in, in, in uh, Rojava, and he said there's a lot of misconception of the commune among the people that are trying to implement the system themselves. Like some people themselves, they think it's just like a, 
uh, a service oriented or like sort of basically replacing the municipality services but that's not the idea of 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 this system um, let me see about um, the PYD and uh, the Assad regime um, the resilience of the system so I mean, people are still uh, unlike they have like fears about the future. This is also translated into the education system. So, for instance, there's people that um, the education system is not recognized by the Syrian government. So you have some people they are saying why we should send our children to this ad administration education system if it's not recognized and then in the future our children cannot study at the universities. And this is all again goes back to the recognition because it's not a recognized uh, administration. So people still don't know after 10 years what's going to happen. Is the regime going to come back? Is Turkey going to attack? Or will it be recognized? Will it stay? So with this unclear scenarios for the future, people are still like a little bit unclear with the education. And that's creating like um, uncertainties for people. Like should they support the system or not? I mean, like the YPG is very popular, like the SDF and the YPG. A lot of people join to defend their, their homeland. But there are still some issues with the non-recognition. Um, so the durability is all dependent, I think, on the international presence. If there's an international presence and they work with the local councils and administration, then it has a very good future. Because, for instance, if you go to the northeast of Syria, they have higher salaries than the Syrian regime. Like they are paying much higher salaries to teachers or people in the administration than, for instance, the Syrian government. Also, they are much more able than the Syrian government, for instance, to uh, restore services, to provide electricity, um, because um, the, the, the countries that the Syrian regime support, they are broke. Iran doesn't have money. Russia doesn't have so much money. That's why all the time Russia is pressuring uh, for Europe actually to give uh, support for reconstruction. But the Europe and both US, they agree on one thing. They don't agree on a lot of things, but they agree on one thing, that they're not going to support uh, the Syrian government from reconstructing all these areas that they destroyed uh, without giving any concessions. So that's why also I think uh, it's unlikely that they will withdraw, because if they withdraw from northeast of Syria, then it would mean that regime will take all these areas, and then they will be empowered because they will control the dams, they will control uh, a lot of the oil and the gas. So um, this is like this issue, like if the U.S. And, and the other coalition partners will stay, then it has a very good future, because you see slowly that services are improving. For instance, when the first time I went uh, to Kobani, uh, the local guest house, the hotel didn't have almost no electricity. But if you now go there, it has like 24 hours electricity almost because they meant uh, they uh, managed to repair the dams. So I think it's all related to that. Like the longer this area stays de facto autonomous, the more future it has, the more better, the more the services improve, the more international support they will get. But if, for instance, there will be a crazy idea by Trump to just withdraw, or if uh, some people in the Democrats, for instance, uh, if there's a new president, we don't know also there will be elections in, in the U.S. in 2020. Uh, Trump will be president until 2021. Uh, and we don't know who's going to be the president after 2021. So what kind of policies they have, because until now in the debate for the U.S., there have not been much debate on Syria. Um, so I think it's all related to the international presence. If there's no international presence, then most likely they will try to seek a deal with the Syrian regime. Uh, but as I mentioned before, the Syrian regime is not very willing to make concessions, which is a big problem. They are not willing to, to look back in the past and see all the damage they have done to the Syrian people. They're just thinking, we have to go back to the way it was before 2011. And 
especially the local people, they don't want to go back to the that people are arrested. I mean, there were thousands of Kurds that they were made stateless by the Syrian regime. Uh, they put place like Arab settlers in these areas. They created like a lot of problems. Uh, Kurdish language was forbidden. Uh, so they don't want to go back to this area that is controlled by uh, the Syrian regime. So the Syrian regime has to make changes in its mentality. But that also depends on, for instance, if the U.S. is supporting, if the U.S. saying we're going to indefinitely stay in Syria, then definitely the regime has to make concessions. Uh, but until now, the situation is de facto. And I think one of the very good cards that they have is that they control these dams. So if uh, the Syrian regime wants to have electricity in Aleppo, basically the electricity switch is controlled by the administration. If they switch off the dam electricity to Aleppo, then electricity is gone in Aleppo. Um, uh, so the problem for Assad is that all these dams and electricity uh, providers, like basically the electricity provision is largely from northeast of Syria. And also there's the agricultural issue that a large part of agricultural sector is basically in northeast of Syria. So they have these very strong cards. But these cars only work when there's a U.S. Air Force or coalition Air Force going above uh, this area. But it doesn't mean that they will try to undermine because there have been people being assassinated. There have been attempts to create unrest, support protests, uh, etc. And there's a lot of propaganda. For instance, we've seen fake videos trying to undermine the YPG, like fabricated videos showing them torturing people, which all most of these videos are all fabricated. Um, I think there was another Refugees question. Refugees plan, plans to integrate them. Yeah. So Turkey said that there's they want to send back one million refugees. One of the issues of this that the U.S. has also said one point is that both the uh, YPG and administration and also the U.S.-led coalition they have one point. They don't allow. Uh, they don't want to allow forced return of refugees to Syria. They don't. They don't support this. So if Turkey wants to forcefully send people back. The U.S. doesn't support this. The coalition doesn't support this. The administration doesn't support this. So only voluntary uh, returns. I mean, there have been some people that were forcefully returned to Idlib, and they have been ended up arrested and, and killed by border guards when they tried to go back to Turkey. So basically, also, the U.S.-led coalition agrees with the administration that there should be no forceful returns. And also another point is of the administration, they only want people to come back that are originally from the area. So if there's people from Raqqa, there's a small percentage of people of Raqqa living in Turkey. There's a small percentage of people of Tel Abiyad living in Turkey. There's a very small percentage of people from Derezor living in Turkey or from Hasaka or some people from Kobani that are still in Turkey because they cannot go back to Kobani because their houses are still destroyed uh, from the fight against ISIS. Um, I mean... If those people want to return back to that this area, they have no problems with that. Um, but they're not going to say, okay, let's have one million or even more people to come back. They don't want to have a second Afrin that the demography changes. So only people that are originally from the area, they can return. But the majority of refugees in Turkey are not from Raqqa or Derezor. They are mostly from uh, Aleppo, from Idlib, from Homs, from Damascus. majority are actually from Aleppo. And actually, I have statistics on the number of people, like where they are from. majority is from Aleppo. So the people from Aleppo should go back to Aleppo. They shouldn't, you should not. There are already like people from Derezor and other areas living. For instance, if you go to Kamishli, a lot of the taxi drivers are actually from Derezor, strangely. Uh, so they're already dealing with thousands of people. I mean, they're also dealing with a whole camp. They're dealing with like over 60,000 people, mostly ISIS women, uh, children. Also, like most of them are Iraqis, but there are also foreigners there. So they already have enough problems. They are already hosting thousands of refugees from Iraq. They're hosting thousands of IDPs and also have to deal with all these foreign ISIS fighters from not only Europe, from 
Russia, from Kazakhstan, from Central Asia, from Tunisia, from Arab countries. So they don't have the capabilities to deal with one million people. <coughs> and if they want to do that, they need to have more support. But as I said, there's still a lot of unclarity because Turkey says something, uh, the SDF and the administration say something, and the U.S. says something. And also one of the problems is that the U.S. doesn't want to say too much. The U.S. just talks about security mechanisms. They don't talk about... Uh, this um, corridor, peace corridor, this is uh, Turkish, uh, uh, Turkish term. Uh, the coalition and the administration, they use security mechanism. They don't even talk about safe zone. I mean, Trump briefly talked about safe zone in December with a call with Erdogan. Um, so there's still a lot of unclarity. And also U.S., they don't want to say too much because they don't want to have, like, provoke Turkey that, oh, U.S. is saying this and then Turkey will respond. They want to keep it as quiet as possible uh, to make... Uh, to not provoke Turkey from like threatening again to attack. Because when I was in Syria recently, there were two days that Turkey was threatening to invade. Uh, and then after those two days, there was an agreement with the U.S. and then it was done. So, um, yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm aware there's still a number of people wishing to ask questions. Could you raise your hand now if, if you would like to put one, two, three, four, five, six. Would you like to start here and we'll work our way up to you. Um, we have about 15 minutes left, so please could you keep your questions fairly brief and we'll try and give everyone a chance to ask one who has one, please. Uh, my name is Thomas McGee and I'm a researcher. Uh, it would be really interesting to hear a bit more about the survey participants that you mentioned. Uh, I was wondering, were they mostly everyday inhabitants of the region or figures affiliated with the self-administration? Are they exclusively Kurdish or were there people from other communities? Uh, if so, did you see difference in perspective uh, between Kurds and Arabs and other communities, particularly in view of the multi-ethnic model that you're talking about? Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Azad. I'm uh, from the University of Sunderland. As uh, Vladimir, you have been recently in uh, north, north eastern Syria in the whole camp. I would like to ask you about the whole camp. We are like receiving on a daily basis reports that this camp, which uh, hosts around 70,000 of ISIS families, um, a lot of them, thousands of them are foreigners from Iraq and other countries. How do they are managing amid this volatile situation? Thank you very much. And then just behind, yes, thank you. Uh, thank you, Vladimir. Um, master student from the University of Leeds. You obviously mentioned that the international presence in northeast Syria is very crucial for the longevity of um, these autonomous regions. I was just wondering what your sort of future perspective for the next sort of two years is in terms of both the US election and obviously uh, somewhat political instability in Europe as well. I guess specifically the US election which sort of candidate or perhaps sort of group of candidates would you say would offer the best hope for um, the future of the Kurdish regions? Thank you. And then a little further back, there was somebody. Yes. Thank you. Yep. Um, uh, first, uh, congratulations, Vladimir. I think uh, your book is uh, one of the most informative and up-to-date books on, uh, on the Kurds available, uh, on Kurds in Syria. Uh, but I want to question one point, one statement you made and link it to a question. If, uh, if I may. Do you mind introducing yourself? Ah, yes, I, I'm Gunay Yildiz from uh, BBC News uh, and also I'm a PhD student at Cambridge. Um, you said uh, the, the PYD was a very small organization and uh, the, prior to the uprising and uh, that the um, KDPS and others have had more uh, following. But that's probably right and I've seen uh, my, with my own eyes how formidable 
the support for KDPS in uh, to late 2017 when I was there. But how do we exactly, how do we know the extent of support to the PYD prior to 2011? The reason I'm asking is like the the uh, let's say the pro urgentist movement for the sake of simplicity, they were able to organize openly between 1980 to uh, 1999, uh, not against the Syrian state but against uh, Turkey. And according to the officials in, in, uh, in northern Syria, uh, around uh, 5,000 uh, people died fighting against the Turkish state in, uh, with the PKK. Uh, and also we can assume that there are a few, other, a few thousand uh, people alive uh, in the mountains and high up in, in the PKK. So that kind of illustrates uh, broad support that is committed to uh, you know, sacrifice you know, their lives. Um, and um, so, I, I mean, uh, we, we don't see the same things necessarily for the, for the KDPS and uh, others. And we, we know that, you know, they, they made two strategic mistakes. One is siding with the largely anti-Kurdish opposition in the early in the uprising. And the second was refusing to take up arms against the regime so they couldn't provide security. Uh, so, I mean, I want you to elaborate on that. But my, my question is also about the intra-Kurdish uh, tensions or you know the re reconciliation. Do you think the French government is right to cut the funding for uh, reconciliation e efforts? And do you think the YPG or, or the PYD can afford to not to uh, re reconcile with the uh, with other Kurds uh, w with the current power they have? And also, do you think w whether the Arabs should also be part of uh, this intra-Kurdish uh, debate because there is no uh, contiguous Kurdistan region in Syria, uh, you know, in, in, the, in the same way like uh, in uh, Kurdistan in Iraq. Thank you. Thank you. You can see a couple more. Right now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We'll carry on. Yes. One more there, and then immediately back. Thank, Thank you. you. Uh, my name is Dara Salam. I'm from Sawas. Uh, my question is in the uh, spirit of the previous question regarding ideology. But to uh, avoid uh, repetition, I just wanted to know. I'm interested in your perspective regarding. Uh, the, the idea of the bottom-up political participation and uh, or, or direct democratic participation, to what extent you think these ideas have been implemented in, in the Rojava? Thank you. Thank you, Dara. And then lastly, we have... Yes, thank you. Thank you very much. Hi, I'm a postgraduate student in London. Um, my question is, to what extent... Um, or how is it possible to explore the inherent tensions that might exist between kind of the objectives of key foreign players such as US, UK, Germany in negotiating their roles as firstly NATO members, so obviously they're allies with Turkey, they've got to negotiate that. Secondly, um, as countries with foreign anti-terrorism and security objectives, obviously in the particular the case of the US as you've mentioned. And thirdly, their role as states with their own domestic policies and interests and their, their kind of um, pr priorities to negotiate the, the interests of, for example, arms lobbies and other interests like that and how, yeah, how is it possible to sort of explore all these different tensions? Okay, lovely. Thank you so much. Thank you, everybody. We have ten minutes left. You have about ooh, only nine questions or so to cover. No. I wish you well. Okay. Thank you. Don't worry if you run out of time. Um... Uh, well, about the surveys, very shortly, read the book. Um, but um, uh, the surveys were only done in Kurdish areas because the initial project was uh, aimed on the Kurds of Syria. I mean, the initial project didn't take in consideration that it's actually northeast of Syria, but the book is still called Kurds of Northern Syria. Uh, so we didn't do, like, surveys um, in Arab-majority areas like Derazor or Raqqa or Tal-Abiyad. 
uh, it's like, but there's not like people from the administration because uh, I was basically going from house to house. I didn't go inside the administration office and did survey with civilians in the administration office. I basically was going from house to house inside the city. So, I mean, 180, it's not still representative. I mean, like, uh, if you want to really have a good representation, then you need to do much more surveys, like at least more than 1,000. Um, so, yeah. Um, about the Al-Hol camp, I mean, the majority of Al-Hol camp are Iraqis, actually. So if they would send back those Iraqis back to Iraq, it would make a huge difference. But the problem is that most of those Iraqis, they don't want to return because a lot of them are wanted and they are actually afraid that Iraq would, for instance, execute them. They always talk about, I mean, a lot of those people in Al-Hol camp are very supportive of ISIS. So they always talk about, oh, we don't want to be captured by the Shia militias and the Iranian-backed militias and they're afraid of repercussions. So also the administration doesn't want to forcefully uh, send those Iraqis back to, to Iraq. Uh, so that's also creates another problem that they don't want to forcefully send them back. Uh, but at the same time, they don't have like a lot of support for this camp. And the camp is divided in sections. So you have the foreigner section and you have like the Iraqi Syrian section. Um, the number of foreigners actually sometimes is exaggerated. It depends on if you include the Iraqis or just foreigners. But the number of foreigner foreigners is probably much lower like i mean the iraqis we talk about thousands uh the foreigners we talk about i mean maybe like if you include the children it's much more but the statistics are always like uh there's not like very clear statistics um but we've seen a lot of like i think yesterday an iraqi person uh, iraqi young boy was killed uh, by knife attack so there's always incidents in all hall and they don't have like a lot of support for instance because damascus doesn't allow also a lot of support to go to all hall camp all hall camp originally was a camp i think for palestinians maybe um right i'm not sure like so like the capacity of this camp was very limited i think it was just like something like thirty thousand, and suddenly it became like seventy thousand. so that's like a big uh, problem uh, about the future perspective, which U.S. candidate is the best hope? I think um, I think until 2000, until the next uh, administration, I think the U.S. will stay in Syria. These negotiations with Turkey about security mechanism safe zone will continue. Maybe we'll see some uh, joint U.S.-Turkish patrols in the area like we've seen before in Mandaj, but this time inside northeast Syria. Um, most likely probably maybe we're going to see some people from Tel Abiyad and Serekania that maybe were abroad to, to slowly return to the area um, maybe also in the future other people that are from northeast of Syria but I don't expect one million Syrians to be forcefully returning to this area um, and I think it's very difficult to say which candidate is the best candidate because I think almost it seems that just like in Europe, like everybody's focused on domestic issues. Uh, there's a lot of tensions in the U.S. and there's not like really a very clear policy in the U.S. even among all the candidates on Syria. Like until now, uh, the Syria debate, it almost doesn't exist in this pres presidential uh, election that is coming up. So it's very difficult now to say in this initial stage which candidate is the best. I think none of them are very good. Uh, but I think probably the U.S. interest will probably oblige them to stay because we saw when Trump threatened to withdraw uh, from Syria, there was actually very much bipartisan com uh, support in the U.S. Congress for the U.S. to stay. So maybe it will depend on the Congress and not so much on the candidate. But we have to see uh, which candidate is going to win because some people say Trump is going to win already. Some people are saying Trump is going to win. Other people say, no, he's going to lose. So we have to first see. I mean, there's still like a lot of time before uh, it's going to be more clear maybe in the in the near future like what the position is from the different candidates. Um, Gune made a very good point is that how we know 
uh, how there, there obviously there are no statistics on who supports NKCR PYD. Also, one of the problems is there has not been an election. I mean, there were uh, election, but the NKCR refused to join. If we would have like an election, what you had, for instance, in the Kurdistan region, that you can see, okay, this number of people voted for the PUK or the KDP or Kurdish opposition, then it would be easier to find out. But there has been not an election with all the Kurdish parties participating. So it's very difficult to have statistics on which people support uh, this organization or not but what I hear from people even that are supporting the PYD that initially that the support for PYD at least was much less when they started in 2012 I mean there were like large protests uh, by youth groups against the Syrian regime and at that time the PYD was much smaller um, but like when they were also, if you look to, for instance, Kobani and Afrin, well, I also see that in Kobani and Afrin, the PYD and the YPG is much more popular than, for instance, in Hasaka province. Like the NKC support, you can look, for instance, to the number of leaders in the NKC. If you look to the leaders in the NKC, the majority are from the Hasaka province. They're not from Afrin or Kobani. Like, there's very minor people that are in leadership of the NKC that are from these regions. But if you look, for instance, to the PYD and the TEFDEM, they are from all over, uh, from all over northeast of Syria. So I think that's maybe like an indication that the NKC support outside of the Hasaka province is much more limited, for instance, in Afrin and Kobani. And there were in the past also rumors, there were some people saying that actually the NKC was demanding um, that um, Afrin and Kobani would be given to the PYD and then NKC will control Hasaka. Uh, but um, that's not like official. Um, so it's very difficult to say like what's the exact support uh, for the NKCR PUA without elections, but you could say, for instance, like from the leadership of the NKCR, but also from the past uh, that you can say. But in the surveys also, we didn't look like there was not, you need to do a lot of surveys to find something like that out. And it was very difficult to do surveys in Afrin because Afrin at that time in 2016 also, it was very difficult to visit it. Um, and about the intra-Kurdish tensions, um, it's always good to have uh, these talks, but the problem is if both sides are not willing to make any concessions, it's very difficult to uh, find a solution to this. So maybe it's better to have just de facto economic relations between the KRG and the administration northeast of Syria. Maybe that's easier to do than trying to improve relations between the NKSE and the PYE. Because you see now there's business going on between the KRG and the administration. The KRG also needs to do business. The administration needs business. So maybe it's easier to decrease tensions by having better economic relations between KRG and the administration in northeast of Syria. Um, about the Arabs, I mean, uh, for instance, um, we didn't talk. One of the problems the Arabs have that before uh, 2011, you only had the Ba'ath party. Uh, while uh, before 2011, the Kurds had many parties. They had the NKC, um, the, pre the parties that joined the NKC later, they were existent. You had the PYD, you had other different Kurdish parties. So the Kurds were much more politically organized, while in the Arab areas, you only had like the Ba'ath party, and in some cases, the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, so after that uh, situation, uh, you had all these rebels, you had ISIS, jihadists. So it's very difficult um, to have this um, issue. And that's why they try to locally, people that are living underground, they try to include those in the councils. But the problem also is that you have, for instance, Derazor, there's a lot of tribal differences. You have different tribes. You have, for instance, the Ugadat, you have the Bagara. Uh, they have all these differences. And for instance, another problem is that some of the tribal leaders are living, for instance, in Turkey or in Damascus. So it's very difficult who is going to represent the tribe. So that's very difficult to organize. And also, there have been attempts by the U.S., for instance, to have, um, to have, for instance, a dialogue between 
the Raqqa Council established, let's say, by the SDF and the Raqqa Council supported by Turkey. But in general, like when this attempt was made to do this abroad, to have this meeting in Europe, like Turkey uh, said to this council that they backed, if you go there, we're not support you anymore. So Turkey was always playing a bad and a negative role in relations between, let's say, the Syrian opposition parties and the SDF and the PYD. So Turkey was always trying to exclude uh, the SDF and the PYD from the Geneva talks, from the Astana talks. So that was always a big problem from creating like intra-dialogue. So, uh, I mean, that's was one of the main reasons. And of course, they have also different visions on the future of, of Syria. And also, there's not much of the Syrian opposition left. Like the Syrian opposition mostly is in exile. They're sitting in hotels in Istanbul. If you look to the Syrian Italaf, they don't have much influence on the ground, even the interim administration. If you go to Azaz or Jarabulus, uh, these areas are completely under the control of Turkish governors in Turkey. They're indirectly or directly governed by Turkish uh, government officials, not by the Syrian opposition. And also, if you look to Idlib, it's under control of uh, this jihadist group, the HDS Hayat al-Tahrir al-Sham. And the, admin, uh, the Syrian opposition has basically no influence there. It's like completely zero. Um, so even if PYD would have talks with Syrian opposition in exile, what kind of influence would it have? Well, actually, all this sort of armed... Turkish back groups are in control or jihadists, so it's very difficult to find like a dialogue. But that's why the Syrian Democratic Council are organizing meetings uh, with tribes, but also with people from other areas. Like, for instance, when I was there, there were like people from uh, homes from uh, Latakia, from Idlib, that joined um, the Syrian Democratic Council. Um, uh, going back to the, I don't know how much time I have left. Yeah. And the last question about international actors. So um, about the bottom-up democratic participation, as I said, also, again, going back to the survey, it's still like a process. I think um, actually the YPG and the SGF, they were more successful in trying to uh, recruit people into the administration uh, in their military formations because, for instance, you had a lot of people that also needed, for instance, financial support for their families. Uh, also, they wanted to defend their own area. So, for instance, in Derazor, you have the Shuatat tribe that joined the SDF to basically take revenge on ISIS because they massacred the tribes. Uh, but in the administration, it's more difficult for the administration on a local level um, to gain more support. Um, but the YPG and the SDF are more uh, because they're like SDF, some uh, estimates say it's like almost 100,000 people now. Um, but still, there's like many people also that join the administrations to basically also um, um, finance their, their basically they need also jobs and stuff. And one of the main uh, job providers are either the administration or the SDF or the internal security forces. So, um, I mean, they still have problems that for local population to understand this new system because it's very new. Like there were a lot of people, for instance, that is or. For instance, in the past, in Derazor, there was a lot of support for the Ba'ath Party. Then Derazor was taken over by uh, FSA and Islamist rebels. Then like, you had like Nusra, then you had ISIS. So you had all these different actors, and then you have this non-recognition. So it's very difficult to change the population's ideas to educate them on this new system, but they're trying. For instance, I was recently talking with, with some officials, and they were basically doing house-to-house -house meetings in Raqqa to basically educate the people about this new system. But I think... If this administration is giving more support in the future, or if the U.S. will stay, then slowly they will be able to uh, educate people more about this new system, and slowly they will get more support. 
and you see this also in the Kurdish areas, like in the beginning, the PYD and the YPG was quite small, but now you see also people, for instance, I also know like young people that their parents are, for instance, uh, supporting other Kurdish parties and they're young, the younger people that are, for instance, in the YPG or they're supporting the administration. So you also see a shift among younger people that they started to, maybe for financial reasons or for security reasons that they saw the YPG as the main security provider, that they started to uh, gain uh, more support among these people um, for the administration. And about uh, the extent of the international situation, I mean, the international, I don't know if I understand your question correctly, um, but basically the future of Syria is decided by Russia and the U.S., if Russia and U.S. reach an agreement, they can solve a lot of issues in Syria. But if there's like disagreement, like Russia still supports the Syrian regime from taking all uh, taking all of Syria back, and the U.S. basically have just a counter ISIS mission. So I think not in the near future there'll be any international agreement on Syria. It's going to be very difficult. I mean, France also plays an important role. But if there's like Syrian Russia just saying Syrian regime should go back like it was in the past, that's not going to work. Um, and I think Europe and U.S., despite that their mission is only counterterrorism in 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 Orfis, Syria, despite that they also want to have better relations with Turkey, but also we should not forget that Turkey is trying to buy uh, Russian uh, weaponry, they're trying to buy Russian rockets. Um, uh, for instance, recently Erdogan was like eating ice cream with Putin and saying, "Oh yeah, I want to buy like a Russian jet." So that's not like really increasing support for Turkey, for instance, in the U.S. Congress. So um, I think. There's not going to be any near solution because there are too many different priorities among the different international actors like Germany, Russia, France. But I think on the question of Syria, of the reconstruction, rebuilding and Syrian opposition, I think U.S. and Europe have a very similar strategy, but there maybe are some differences. Thank you. Well, if you, if you enjoyed this event, if you found it useful, informative, stimulating, do come back because on the 3rd of October, our next event at the Middle East Centre uh, is related. We are screening a documentary. The film is called I Am the Revolution and we're flying over the director, Benedetta Argentieri, from Italy. Uh, the film documents three women and their political activism. Uh, one of them is a YPJ commander, so that's the Rojava section. The other two are in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, registration for that will open on September the 18th. You can see all the details on our website or through the mailing list, so do please come back for that again. Um, please, after we conclude, do go and have a look at the book, Courage of Northern Syria. It's on the table behind you. Copies are available for sale here today at the very special bargain price of just £25. Um, it's well worth it for such a meticulously researched and brilliantly written book. So many congratulations to Vladimir and to Harriet on the fine piece of research they have published with Ivy Taurus. Um, and lastly, thank you to you, Vladimir, so much for being so generous with your time, with your knowledge, your expertise today, uh, for that wonderful presentation and for handling such a huge number of diverse and detailed questions. I think we're all very grateful to you. We wish you very well continuing your research, your journalism and your analysis and look forward to seeing you again. Thank you all very much for coming and please show your thanks to Vladimir. Thank you.